are listening to Marcy Lynn once again on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Hello all, happy Thursday. You're going to see me on a little bit of a delay today because of course you know I'm in my home office um, and I live in Beaver Hills and sometimes it's a little delayed because of the um, signals that's over here. So I am happy to be here. I'm sorry I was had to miss you guys last week. I had to take care of some things. Um, I am praying for the gentleman that got shot on my street. You know, I was directly there and um, it really hurt to see that our daylight, it doesn't matter um, anymore. So on that note, I'd like to introduce my guest for today, um, Tom Goldenberg. Now, what has happened is I all of a sudden saw this gentleman running around with somebody I really, really respect in uh, the campaign world. And I decided that I wanted to have him on my show. And this is him sitting in my living room with a cup of coffee. We are going to talk. We're gonna talk about the things that are crucial to our neighborhoods, but at the same time, this is a get to know him show. I want you guys to get to know him. I don't want you to just look online. I want you to be able to use this show to research the genuine person as he's speaking to us. Thank you so much, Tom, for taking out the time. Thank you, Glenn. I appreciate it. <laughs> and so I just really, just tell me, I don't know you from Adam, just act like that and tell me exactly who you are, your background, where you came from. I know you're a youngin, so you technically would be one of my nephews. So <laughs> tell us all about yourself. Sure, happy to do so. Uh, so I grew up in West Haven in the, the Knox Street neighborhood there. My folks are still over there. They're retired teachers. My dad was a... Uh, a teacher, special ed teacher at ACES for about 40 years. And my mom was in Hampton Public Schools in their alternative program, um, also retired. And and yeah, I just grew up in the area. I went to public schools in West Haven and in New Haven. I attended the ECA, you know, Education Center for the Arts mm -hmm. Magnet School. Um, yeah. so I've always felt a part of this community, you know, you know as, as long as I can remember. And, um, you know, my life has had a lot of twists and turns. When in my 20s, after a couple of years of college, I decided to go to India. Um, I happened to be there during the tsunami of 2004. Oh. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, that, was a, that was a devastating event for a lot of countries. And, and India was also affected. I happened to be on a, in a coastal village on Southwest India. Um, it was not as badly hit as other parts of, of the region, but we had a hundred casualties. Almost all of the houses were completely destroyed and there was no warning, of course. Right. So it just happened. Mm -hmm. I happened to be in it. And so I was involved in, you know, moving people to safety. And then afterwards, the um, the organization where I was staying, we were involved in building temporary shelters, um, really just helping with the rebuilding efforts. And so I, you know, I stayed in India for uh, quite a long time. I was there off and on across nine years, and uh, and then I came back to New Haven. And you know, when I came back to New Haven again, I had a lot of uh, you know twists and turns in my career. I was. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked in hospitality downtown. I was mm -hmm. in Bali on Orange Street and then Pacifico mm -hmm. on college. 
Um, well, that, that, that's coming up on my next question. So that really goes, because I was really getting ready to ask you, like, um, what civic or organizations or nonprofits have you worked with yeah. um, or been active in recent years? So those are a few, and I'm sure there are many more being in hospitality. So in hospitality, um, did you interact with more of the uh, business groups or it's more business, more civic groups than it would be hospitality or, or nonprofits, correct? Well, so this was more of a formative period of my my life and career. And so I'll be honest with you, this was just me trying to, you know, make money to pay the rent. Um, mm -hmm. So I, at that time, I was less involved with uh, nonprofit organizations that would come later. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, from there, I got into the, the world of technology. I taught myself how to code by going to one of these uh, coding boot camps. I enjoyed that. What's that? I said, great experience. I think all our teenagers need to do that right now. Yeah, and, and it did really open my eyes that college education is not absolutely necessary to get a good job. Um, this was something that I found I could do without having to go to get a degree in or anything. Um, and that really kind of opened my eyes there. I then became a business owner. From there, I became a consultant. And it was really when I, I joined this, you know, these large, you know, global management consulting firms that I, I put two and two together. I, I, I remember when I came back from India, I had this experience of thinking, you know, nine years and really helping to make a difference and having an impact was incredibly meaningful to me. But when I came back, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice to do something in the region where I'm from? Exactly. Um, I grew up in this, in, in this area. And exactly. the, other, the other part of the puzzle was, you know, after I went through this journey of so many different career opportunities, when I found myself at these consulting firms, I, I was at Boston Consulting Group, mm -hmm. and then I was at McKinsey for four years, mm -hmm. I realized that, you know, they do very strategic and important work for government, mm -hmm. um, state government, you know, city government, we're talking about New York City, the yes. state of Connecticut, you name it. And that's when I said, well, here's my opportunity to really get the experience I need so that I could really help to make an impact in, in New Haven. And that's been the last, you know, um, several years. And I've got to work with, um, you know, major U.S. cities. I've worked with, with U.S. mayors, um, mm -hmm. with U.S. states on a range of topics, you know, uh, education system. How do we adapt after COVID? Yes. I got the um, $100 million federal grant to build a workforce development program to create jobs. I've mm -hmm. worked with housing developers, pension funds, um, and, and that has really given me the confidence to say, you know, my lived experience perspective in New Haven and the experience I've gotten through these professional opportunities um, makes me feel like I can really make a difference here. And that's amazing because you're covering Another question as I'm getting ready to ask them, which is good. And at that question was really, give me what distinguishes you from other, candid other candidates that we have. So a lot of the things that you just mentioned, but you know, aside from that, is there anything else that would distinguish you from other candidates as well? I think if you look at um, the work that I've done, mm -hmm. it's, there's a breadth, right? You know, a, a lot of times they'll say about someone's career, you should be like a T. Right, you should have a long breath, but you should be very mm -hmm. focused on one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've really focused on 
the issues that matter to U.S. cities. And, and so whether it's education, which is currently a big crisis, I believe, in the city right now, or it's, um, you know, housing policy, mm. or it's, you know, fiscal um, issues that we face, I've had the opportunity to work with some of the, the best in, in you know, other cities and other organizations on these things. So I think there's a breadth of experience. Um, the fact that, you know, I have a very solution focused mindset to some of the issues we face. Mm -hmm. so I think you'll find that I'm not just pointing a finger and I'm saying this is bad, but I will always come to the table with, um, you know, what I, what, what I can put forward as what I best believe is, is a way to go forward. And I, and I do that not just by myself. It's a very collaborative process. Um, mm -hmm. I, I believe in talking to as many people as possible and gathering as much input, whether it's from people on the ground in the city or from, you know, experts outside the city and really trying to come forth with what's the best uh, plan to bring us forward. Mm, that's true. And, uh, you know, you really got to have a plan. And with that, it's just what strategy would you use for, you know, a lot of the opioid and drug addiction is coming from mental illness, especially after COVID. What strategies or what um, have you dealt with as a challenge with these type of things? And how were you able to rectify them or resolve them in a way where it didn't feel like it was uh, a discrimination or, you know, because they discriminate probably not only because of your age, but because you're a white male. So with going into these things in New Haven, especially, maybe, you know, I mean, there are some people that have problems that are not opioid um, related, but we have to remember that most of that is mental health. So what would be your strategy to get like-minded people to help, the help that they need? Because our therapists, our licensed social workers, our psycholo psychologists, all of them are ending up having mental health issues themselves because they're overwhelmed. What strategy would you, you know, use to maybe get some more people educated in helping and aiding and certifying finding those people that have been recovered for a long time and, you know, giving them a voice? Yeah, I, I, I think that you, you're bringing up a very um, complicated issue, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the issue is, I, I think you mentioned mental health, and I think that has a lot of different aspects, you know, yes. whether it's a youth or adult population. And then you mentioned specifically, um, you know, um, opioid addiction, um, and, and, and other things of that sort. I, I mean, there's a lot there. Uh, you know, I, I can say some of the things I've talked about is mm -hmm. the need to balance a public health approach, which we absolutely need, but while maintaining respect for our communities. And I, I think this is something that we haven't seen. So for example, I spent a good amount of time spending time at several of the methadone clinics in and around the city. Um, I had heard, you know, that residents in the Hill and New Hallville were concerned about some of the decisions that were being made without their input. Yes. And I needed to get the firsthand experience. Um, and, and so I, that's exactly what I did. I spent um, five days visiting, talking to patients, clinic staff, talking to, uh, in the case of Congress Avenue, some of the 
illegal drug dealers that hang out outside of the facility, um, you know, talk to a number of people. And I ended up publishing an actual diary about that experience mm -hmm. and, and what, what I went through. And yes. the, the conclusion I came to is that, I, like, I think we absolutely need to support evidence-based treatment. I think mm -hmm. methadone clinics can be very effective, but the way that they've been um, is located uh, to me just doesn't seem lo like logical or right. Like the the one that is on Congress Avenue is right next to the John Daniel School. Mm -hmm. We know that there's been incidents of both violence and um, you know just quality of life issues, syringes left out. It's mm -hmm. not um, it's not a great environment for people that are walking their kids to school. Mm -hmm. And I was, a lot of people were, I myself was surprised that I was really the first politician to really say anything about it. Yeah. And so that's, that's what I did. I said, I didn't think it was an appropriate place. And now we've seen that um, that that has been accepted by, you know, the, the mayor has also come to that conclusion as mm -hmm. well. Um, I also did not feel it was appropriate for App Foundation to move into the New Hallville neighborhood oh, yeah. without any community input at all. So um, these are things that, you know, we need to be open about. We need to, you know, we need to make sure that that, that there's community input on these decisions because if you're just trying to force it down a community, first mm -hmm. of all, a lot of the patients that are coming in are not even living in New Haven. They're coming not from outside. And then these neighborhoods, which if you look at the hill in New Hallville, these are you know um, black and Hispanic neighborhoods are having to deal with the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, there was something that struck me as that being deeply wrong and and i wanted to say something about it and i'm glad that it has started to get some public attention mm -hmm. uh, i i do think when i think about the youth and you had mentioned specifically about mental illness mm -hmm. i think there is something about um it, not just mental health issues but like how do we really inspire our youth from a young age you see a lot of youth that are not going to school, right? We had the worst chronic absenteeism in the state, you know, behind Bridgeport, Hartford, and Waterbury. So mm -hmm. I think there's, and you know, I, I myself, having attended several of the education meetings, I was disappointed when the rationale was that, well, it's COVID. And so that's why we slid. But COVID has been everywhere, not just yeah. in COVID. And I think our school system has slid back more than other school systems because we haven't actually like looked at our kids actually like, do they want to go to school? Like, do they feel safe at school? Do they feel engaged with their teachers and in their classrooms? And I think that ultimately we need to unlock that because that, you know, having something that you can aspire to be Yes. Uh, from a young age is something that can really motivate kids not just to go to school but um but to do well and stay out of trouble mm -hmm. and seeing a lot of youth getting involved in things they shouldn't be involved with the, the car thefts and the kia boys 
yeah. seeing um, a lot of involvement in in um, in, in gun violence, actually. Yeah. Um, with minors. And I, I think it goes back to how do you come in in the middle school years um, because, you know, they say you can't be what you don't see and mm -hmm. give these kids a real understanding of what the pathways are and how they can uh, achieve something. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to high school, how do we, once you've created that motivation, how do we unlock that for those students? It doesn't yeah. necessarily, again, I go back to my own story, it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. have to mean a college mm -hmm. degree. We yeah. should be doing internships, apprenticeships, uh, certifications, all in high school, so that when kids do get out of high school, they can get a quality, uh, a quality job. So all, yeah. all these things are related, how we treat our yeah. communities, how we work with um, the nonprofits that are in the New Haven area, and yes. in how we think about our education and our jobs. They're all, it's, like I said, it's a complicated. It's, it's an ethical dilemma, dilemma that is heightened by systematic racism. That is how I feel about it. So it's just a matter of how you touch it so the kids can see that you actually can be what you want to be. That's why I do what I do as far as my show is concerned. A lot of my guests are small business owners. A lot of them have had a past. I put purposely put um, Janice Parker on this. I don't know if you know Janice Parker, you should meet her. Um, her story is exactly what our young ladies need to see. So, you know, you come from one place doesn't mean that you have to be stuck there. So um, showing our children what they need to see so they can be all that they can be. And knowing that maybe sometimes their surroundings are not what they're supposed to be. So now we have to reach out to the entire family. You know, there's yes. a lot of two-parent two households that would be two-parent households if, you know, a father or a mother wasn't incarcerated for something that they didn't do. So we're, we're, we're digging into all kinds of deep dilemmas here. So when I say ethical uh, dilemmas, give me one that you faced and how you resolved it. Well, you sounded like a, a job interview now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, you know, it is a job interview. <laughs> it, is, it is, right? Listen, I think ethical dilemmas, the way I frame that is a situation where you know what is the right thing to do, but mm -hmm. you're also concerned about the risks associated with it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I mean... I can even just go back to the um, the stuff with the methadone clinics. That was an ethical dilemma because I knew that some people would misinterpret what I said. I knew that I would be, um, you know, attacked by the mayor, which I was. Um, but I knew that I had the conviction that it was right. Yes. And I think that's what you get to with an ethical dilemma is mm -hmm. having the confidence in yourself that um, that you have really dug deep and figured out that this is the right thing to do mm -hmm. and despite the consequences it's worth doing and yes. I, i've certainly been in that situation in professional situations as well um where i have seen leaders do things that i i didn't think were right and i've taken the initiative and, and spoken about it now how you do that is is the trick because there's there's a way, you know, 
so one of my mentors said this. He said, if you, there's three steps, right? One is you come to your, um, your, whether it's an employer or someone else, and you say, this is wrong. I think this is wrong. That's, you know, okay, if you're right about it, and you're saying like, this is, this is an issue, Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you know, whoever you're working for should, should appreciate that. Now, the next step to do even better, you say, hey, I think this is wrong. And here's what I would do about it. That's the second mm -hmm. level, right? That's now, yes. you're, now you're pointing something wrong, and you're providing a solution. Now, the mm -hmm. third level uh, is, hey, th I think this is wrong. Here are three things we could do about it. And this is the best one, I think. So then you're providing a range of options. And, and so I, that's one of the things I've learned is that even when you face ethical dilemmas and you have to call something out because it's not right, there are ways to do it in a way that, um, that, that will make it easier to take. And I think with the methadone, if I use the methadone, um, the, the statements I gave on the methadone clinics, I felt like we did a very good job because I literally documented every single conversation I had and put it in a diary. So you can literally see my thought process as I'm going through this issue and what were the conversations that led me to that decision. And so, um, you know, even though it still got, um, you know, like overly simplified, I think people that really care about it will go back and said, you know what, he really tried to understand this issue from multiple lenses and did, did not try to stigmatize any group of people, but really tried to bring forward something that, that could work for, um, to balance the two needs. And, and that's what I find is like, when you're able to find that voice where you can speak truth to power but do so from a solution-based mindset. There you go. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it, it can actually empower you. Like it, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't have to be the case that like calling out these things hurts you professionally. It, it, I, I found that people do respect it when you are able to be very rational about it, let go of the emotions and, you know, just say like, this is realistic. what I observe and this is what I think we should do about it. Yeah, keeping it realistic, you know, and, you know, keeping it simple, one thing at a time. So what do you think the most pressing problem is facing? You know, our city has a couple of problems, but maybe one or two pressing problems and, you know, how you would probably resolve them or close to resolve them or what team you would pick to resolve them. Yeah, I, I mean, there are a couple of issues that we know a lot of New Haveners are concerned about. Um, most people will talk about um, safety is a big one, housing is another, education is another. And I actually start with education because I think that's a foundational thing. Um, I, I feel like that is the one that really because even if you don't have kids, and mm -hmm. so you might think, well, why, why should I care about education? I don't have kids. Uh, or, you know, some people, they might not put their kids through the public system. They might put them somewhere else. Um, but it is so important because uh, you can't 
fix the other issues without having a, a quality education for kids. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, this is something that I just, again, like I just fundamentally believe in. You know, I come from a family of, of school teachers. And mm -hmm. if you want to reduce, um, if you want to improve the neighborhoods or home ownership, or you want to improve um, the quality of life and the, the safety on the streets, I mean, kids got to go to school and get a quality education. And, and those two things have not been happening. I mean, New Haven is like, was kind of an innovator when it comes to public education. The Promise program, I mean, it, it, New Haven Promise wasn't the first city to do that, but it was one of the first. Yes. Um, and then you look at the, the decades of New Haven being on kind of the leading foreground of education reform and then to like hear that we're behind Bridgeport. I, yeah, what, that. What's up with that? Like what happened? You know, like I don't get so well, Bridgeport Bridgeport's kids are coming to our charter school. So it's kind of confused. I'm a bit confused it, on that. It makes no sense. And that I mean that's why I go back to you know, the district leadership going up and saying, this is because of COVID. Everyone has had COVID. The fact that our schools in the last four years have slid so far behind that we, mm. are, we have the worst performance in the state is something that should shock. And, and it, I, I just saying it, it shocks me, but this is what we've been going through. And so, mm. You know, I, I know what I know that we need to do better. We need more. First of all, we need a mayor that is hands-on and engaged mm -hmm. with the school system. A mayor that can call out, you know, and and hold people accountable. Make sure that there's rigor and there's transparency. Yes, I just haven't seen that. And then to your point about the parents. I, I feel like the parents have been shut out too. We've got bad meetings for three years that have been held remotely. And only after myself and others have been tirelessly advocating for in-person meeting, one yes. day we just kind of quietly uh, move to hybrid, which is great, but it shouldn't have waited so long. We shouldn't yeah. have been the last school in the state to open the schools back up. Um, and the fact that of our 44 schools, you only have, uh, you have less than a quarter. Maybe, maybe it's, um, maybe it's like eight schools, something. I don't have the exact number, but it's mm. surprisingly small number of schools have parent organizations that actually regularly meet. And, and so mm. you look at this between the board of ed and the parent organization, like, need to bring parents closer not keep them further out yeah definitely. and so I, I think that's a big part of it i would want to establish in the mayor's office a liaison to the to the new haven public schools that can specifically working on supporting parents um giving parents the resources to really be able to work with their kids um, mm -hmm. and help them through this so i yeah. that's 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 kind of the biggest you'll see like on my my door card it's number one put the mm -hmm. school back on track i mean yes. it's so it's so important 
Now, I agree with you, but we have to really, really face that we are in a housing crisis. It is just unaffordable. We have all these luxury, luxury apartments coming up, um, you know, and there are like 13,000 luxury apartments and zero affordable housing. So um, what measures do you take, would you take to make more affordable housing for New Haven specifically? Um, well, this is, just, mm -hmm. go ahead. No, it's just, uh, it's just, it really boggles me how we have all of these luxury apartments and uh, they specifically have amount of affordable apartments that are always filled before they even open. So I'm not sure how that goes, but I do know that there's a lot of places being built, but people are being priced out of them. So at the same time, we have a federal government that's giving people social security raises that are pricing them out of affordable housing at the same time. So that's not being considered. So we have homeless families, which of course means that the kids have to move around if they're in shelters. So we have a lot of things before they get to school with the issues. So the biggest part of it is what would you do to face the affordable housing? That's my granddaughter checking on grandma. <laughs> so again, this is an issue that requires a little bit of a unpacking, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have things that we can do as a city that's at the city level, mm -hmm. things that we should be doing at a state level. And then quite honestly, a, a big chunk of it is things we should be doing at a federal level as a country. And I'll, let me start there, which mm -hmm. is I, I am a big proponent of the housing voucher program. Uh, where you can get a, a subsidy that you can choose where you want to live. Mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent program. The problem is that as a country, we do not fund this program hardly at all. And that's mm -hmm. why when I go on the buses and I talk to folks, I, I, they, they're homeless or they're like, they, they can't get housing. Are they on the, the voucher program? Well, they're on the wait list. And what are they on the wait list? Are they, what, 10, 20, 13,000. I have somebody that's 13,000, literally 13,248, that person is. Think about that. That's insane. And so you're waiting years? Now, now on the other They've been on the list since 2018. So one of the things, I want to talk to Senator Blumenthal, mm -hmm. Representative DeLauro, like, let's make the housing voucher program fully funded, right? Yeah. So the same way with the SNAP program, if I qualify for SNAP, I don't go on a voucher, I, I don't go on a wait list, right? Mm -hmm. I get my EBT card because the yeah. way as a country we structured the food program is if you qualify, you get it. Yeah. And that is how I believe the voucher program should work and we need our US delegation to push for that. Yeah. Right. We that's do. that's at a like very high level. I do not think as a city we can solve that problem. Not at all. No. Right. I think especially with the landlords that we have, you know, we have a lot of people that are doing the most that they can to help people, but then they get what we call burned. And then, you know, everybody's a bad apple when it comes to the voucher program. So those is you have to look from but, look at it from both both let, angles. But let me say some more. So one of the things that I just don't understand, right? Um, we have property taxes in New Haven 
They've gone up, 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 and up year mm -hmm. after year after year. And when you combine that with the fact that we did a revaluation in the the, the most affected areas are the Hill, New Hallville, and Fairhaven, all mm -hmm. black and Latino neighborhoods. So that over two years, if you're in these neighborhoods, on average, you see a 40, 40% increase in your taxes. It's, mm. it's just insane to me. Are you guys, I hope people are paying attention to hearing that. Because a lot of people don't realize that. I mean, if you look at your tax bill, you will. But but it's also a, a deep inequity because other neighborhoods, instead of 40, they go up seven. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge difference, you know. Um, so I think the tax policies we've put in place right now have really hurt these neighborhoods. That's why I want to freeze taxes for the next two years. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's imperative that we do so because that is also pushing out our middle class. Uh, people are less inclined to buy or to own mm -hmm. because they just can't afford it. Yeah, it's unaffordable. I mean, when your uh, mortgage is less than your tax portion on your you know, bill, it's just like, what just happened and you cut like i was getting ready to ask you about taxation so it seems like everything that i'm going to ask you you cover it before but that's great because we can what what can we do to reduce the homelessness because of the things that are going on where people are losing their homes and yeah. um again it is it goes back to the federal using the money properly i should just say using the money properly well again more money, money i i'm going to be honest like mm -hmm we need to expand it, it's like that would require additional federal funding but is something that as a country i i think we we know we know that if you provide on a, a housing first model if you provide mm -hmm. housing to people first they're more likely to not be homeless and they're more mm -hmm. likely to be employed because they're coming from a place of stability and the crime declines and um and you got like you yeah. said there's a lot of kids in the system right now that that don't have a stable home um that are either homeless or in an insecure housing and the other thing i do want to say is when we think affordable housing mm -hmm. affordable housing used to mean old housing right and yeah. I, I think one of the things that's happened we've seen in our country that a lot of the housing stock is not getting bought for people to live in, but it's mm -hmm. for people to invest in. And make money in, yeah. Yeah, so you got like nationally, just for single families, Yes. 25% of them are just going mm -hmm. to investment, nationally, mm -hmm. right? So that's just for the single families. I do think there needs to be an incentive to level the playing field for owner-occupied housing purchases because that goes that goes to create more stability in the neighborhood when people are living in the houses they own whether it's a single family or a small multi-family mm -hmm. need that for our neighborhoods 
Yeah, I know a lot of people at the starter houses, we had a program that was working out very well and it's kind of declined now. So I'm not sure what's going on with that. But, you know, remember the first time home buyer and all the different programs that we have, but we, we need more planned initiatives. You know, I think it's just, gonna, like I said, picking the right people to do the right things and all working together to support them. So do you have any ideas um, about how to make our city more affordable? for everyone, not just, you know? Well, I think, I, I mean, affordability is, is multiple ways, right? I mean, affordability does get back to property taxes because that is part of what goes to the monthly costs, um, both as a, a, a property owner or homeowner, but even as a renter, it pushes prices up. So I think that's part of it. I think mm -hmm. there are areas of the city where we do need to um, build more tax revenue and actually like take that tax revenue, right? They underassess a lot of the, ma the, the main buildings, right? So I do think economic development, if we do it smart in the right areas, I, I look at Union Station and I just see a ton of potential there. One of my ideas or, you know, early ideas is why don't we rename Union Station in honor of Constance Baker Motley? who is a pioneer and a local legend mm -hmm. and created as almost a, like a tourist attraction for people to really get that experience. And then, if you, and then if you go across the street, we've got that empty lot. Like, why don't we make that a pedestrian thoroughfare that goes to the green? That's, that mm -hmm. was going back a hundred years ago. That was the original vision for the city. You can get retail, some mixed use development. So, mm -hmm. Part of the things when we do this, we we do increase our tax revenue. It lessens the burden on the taxes, which does help. Um, I do agree. I think most um, you know most cities and most politicians at this point do agree that density can be good. Um, you know it, when it's used appropriately and in the right circumstances to you know bring some of the prices down. Right now, mm -hmm. it's a seller's market. You know, like I'm talking to people that are trying to buy a house and mm -hmm. these are people in like very well-paid professions even. And yeah. they're like, I don't know, <laughs> like it's and not many yeah. people are selling. So I, I, I do think encouraging more development is good. Um, and, and increasing the tax base is, is also yeah. a good thing. But, you know, while we do that, we just have to be intentional we have to you know make sure that we're preserving you know the the things that makes the city beautiful in our neighborhood yes mm -hmm. yeah so that's why i was going to ask you what do you think our city's biggest strength is oh uh, we got so many strengths so i'll mm -hmm. share something i there I, a lot of times um you know sometimes in in my line of work where you work with other cities You'll look at a city and you'll say, well, what's a what's a benchmark or what's another city that they could aspire to be or that they should be like? And, you know, it's it's a whole different angles. But the com comparison city that would come up quite frequently is Cambridge in the United Kingdom. And it's mm -hmm. very interesting because, you know, I, I wasn't aware of this, but Cambridge, the city is the same population size as New Haven. They have 130,000 people. Okay. They, also, they also have Cambridge University, which is you know also a major research institution like we have Yale. Yeah. And uh, Cambridge in the UK is about 90 minutes from London. 
the same way that we're proximate to New York, right? So the same kind of raw ingredients are there, but they've become an economic powerhouse where um, they, they recently announced about 90,000 jobs have, have been produced out of that city. And so that's why when I look at New Haven, I say, okay, where are the industries where the future is and where we can grow and we can train individuals and we can also bring in larger employers? Well, they're in biotechnology, they're in climate technology, where there's going to be a ton of money coming in from the federal government, and they're in healthcare, healthcare innovation. Mm -hmm. And I, I truly believe that we can create 50,000 jobs here in the next 10 years. Yes. And we, we do that by being proactive, by being aggressive, like really, mm -hmm. really building things up. But we mm -hmm. also do it by making sure our education system is creating mm -hmm. those opportunities, that we have local hiring commitments, that these, that, that these private um, partners are committed mm -hmm. to our communities as well. And mm -hmm. that also includes workforce development programs. So that's kind of the vision. It's like, let's grow the pie. Let's let's expand the pie. Let's make New Haven an economic powerhouse, which we should be. But let's also use that to address the historical inequities that we've had. You know, we we know that like many 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 um, U.S. cities, New Haven has been redlined and segregated. Um, you know, dating back, you know, like eighty years, right? So, you know a lot of cities are dealing with that but if we if we do this in the right way if we if we grow our economic base and invest in education workforce development and also you mentioned businesses i yes. want to see a lot i are we need so much more to do so much more when it comes to minority owned businesses yes we are not cutting it uh, when you look at our minority contracting program, the fact that maybe a percent of a percent is going to local black contractors is something yeah. not right about that. So yeah. in my first, you know, first 90 days or 100 days. There you go. Answer my questions before I ask them again. Yeah. <laughs> Let, well, I'll tell you the first thing I'm going to do. The first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to go up the steps of City Hall. I'm going to go right to the mayor's office. And I, I, I'm not really good with tools, but I'm going to have someone take that door and take it off. Thank you. <laughs> Open door and you will actually be there when you can. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Open door to the mayor's office. Let's not even have a door. And that's what um, Bloomberg did in New York, New York City. I, I, for the life of me, I, I, nobody can figure it out. It's like that you go up the steps of City Hall, you go to the mayor's office, the doors close. You know, I mean, what's going on? So um, that's day one. But within the first hundred days, I want to revise our approach to minority contracting. I want to make sure that there's a set amount that goes to local. That is. Greater New Haven mm -hmm. black contractors. Yes, yes. What I have found is that there is a glaring disparity in, in what is happening. And so you have all this economic development, but the community that 
we even created a minority contracting guideline that's mm -hmm. not really being benefited. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is one, and, and that goes across the board, how we, how, we, how we work with small businesses, how we work with um, minority business owners and entrepreneurs, that has to be one of the success metrics of my administration is, is how are we creating economic empowerment, minority business ownership, um, and success in these neighborhoods. That's amazing. Uh, like everything you're saying is really, it's really effective, you know, and implementing it. So in implementing it, how would you work with elected officials and staff? And I also wanted to thank you because um, I was still getting calls from everyone because I was still Ward 30's uh, co-chair uh -huh. and everybody else stopped calling. You did not. And I appreciate that because it just seemed like, okay, I understand how important that position was, mm -hmm. but my health and mental stability, I needed to give it up. So I did. So when I started getting the calls and people would call me, I'm going, oh, they must think I'm still. And that, that as soon as they realized I wasn't anymore, the conversation kind of went abrupt. With you, it was like, okay, I'm listening to her. And then every time I saw you, and then here we are, you know, and everybody knows they're always invited to come see me because I'm non-biased until I'm biased. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> once, I, once I'm there, I'm there. So I appreciate that you did do that. But how would you work with local uh, other elected officials and, um, you know, just some of the staff, pick your staffing, what, what would your ideas be for that in our last 10, 15, oh, wow, we got 15 minutes already, we went fast. <laughs> you answered all my questions, I couldn't even ask them because you got me, you knew where I, I was going. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I like to get in the weeds and really figure out what you know what other people are bringing to the table and how i can complement that and how i can get a consensus um i think that's something that i've developed over these and you know being a business owner myself you can't mm -hmm. be overly stubborn you have to listen to people that you work with and treat them as equals um, and so i think that respect and that willing to it's, it's not, I don't even call it negotiating. It, it's just mm -hmm. understanding. Um, that's kind of where I start as a basic principle, working with the other elected officials in the city, um, you know, um, working with cabinet members. I mean, one thing I've told anyone that works with me is I want critical feedback. Like, it's something that I thrive on and I want to be able to, cause that's kind of like the chiseling, you know what I mean? It's like, yes, you, yes, got yes. This, you got a sharp stone and you put it in a tumbler and it goes around and mm -hmm. the edges get soft. And mm -hmm. I feel like I might have an idea on, you know, any of these topics, education, safety, housing, right? But it's when you have those conversations and when people bring other ideas to the table, that that idea becomes something that's really valuable. So I, that's that's what I would say is like, I want critical feedback. I, I do not want anyone to just go along because I'm saying it. And in fact, like I will support people even if they don't support me. Like if I see someone who's standing up for 
their community and who is, you know, really thinking about how they can make it better. And, you know, even if they don't support me, I'm like, yeah, that's what our city needs. That's we a good need, quality. That's we a great need quality. people and we need more people to step up. We need, we need, we need a bench of people that are engaged and, um, you know, interested in being part of the political process and who know something yeah. about something. And um, that's ultimately what creates the, the, you know, a really powerful combination of, of in our inner city. It is. It's amazing because it, it's the melting pot of things because everybody is different financially. You know, there's deficit here, there's deficit there. And, you know, we're all being affected even by gun control. And, you know, there's nothing that we really can do um, except keep ourselves safe. But public safety in the city is not anyone's fault. And that's why I explain to people. It's all of us together have to improve public safety. And I, I don't like when they blame, you know, mayors or anyone elected on public safety issues because you can't control a human. So I always just make sure that, you know, be careful of your surroundings. But um, I just would really, really, probably in the last few minutes, um, but of course we need more police officers um, and they need more funding for training but would you have a different approach with what we're going through now? Um, I think that they're more empathetic now. Um, they're being trained to be more empathetic, but I do believe that New Haven is one of the cities that could uh, teach some of the other countries uh, or other states, I should say, and some other cities around here, the difference between, even with what has gone on as of late, I still see less here in New Haven than I would see in a, even a Brantford, you know? And, yeah. you know, things are still going on in East Haven, so public safety amongst each other. If I take a step back, you know, a few weeks, um, we did a press conference in the Botanical Gardens and mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of right, right over where, where you are, right? So yes. um, first of all, that is such a powerful, ex just experience. Just it was a very long process. I don't know if you know I was involved with the process. It was a very long process. I can I can only imagine it's um, it's it's a very in a way it's a very difficult thing to go through to go through that that those bricks you see year after year the victims of gun violence and you see the name and you see their age and some of them are very young mm -hmm. um, and so I I think we I think you're absolutely right it's no one person can can stop that it really takes the whole community um to work together and to stop 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 making these bricks like mm -hmm. you know already this year we've got um 12 or 13 of them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's it's I, I think that it's it has to be a community approach i think that we need to go back to the principles of early intervention and prevention. Mm -hmm. I think we have to do something to reduce the proliferation of illegal guns. Mm -hmm. um, those two things are the things that I, I believe very strongly in and, um, and, and that I'm committed to working on. I, you know, we used to have the USTAP program under Mayor Harp 
I think that that is an excellent model that we need to expand in further, not yes. just cut it down and scale it back. Um, and so that's one of the things I, I really committed to. Let's identify before there's an issue, of right? Course. Exactly. So that mindset of, you know, especially with the, uh, the youth, like, let's not wait until they're already justice involved before we're getting involved with their family and helping them out. Like, let's anticipate and prevent. And I, I do absolutely believe that we've got to somehow, as a community, come up with, have strategies to reduce the, the guns on the streets because when I, I mean, I'm a data person, right? Like mm -hmm. I, when I look at the statistics and we look all across the world, mm -hmm. nobody has gun violence like the United States. Yeah. Nobody has as many guns as the United States. And mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer in responsible gun ownership and mm -hmm. um, you know safe storage and all those things. But the fact is we have a lot of, uh, you know, with the ghost guns and whether it's stolen or, uh, you know, underground sales for guns, we've got a lot of these going around and we've got to have a way to really as a full community to say mm -hmm. we've, we've got to stop and we've got to come up with strategies to get them off the street. Yeah. The thing about it is like um, they're trying or, the policies are trying to fix it from where the problem is not. They're trying to control me as a legal gun owner with three permits in three states where the issue is right. actually guns that are illegal and right. the mental health of the people that are getting the illegal, illegal, very easily getting the illegal, illegal guns. And that scares me, you know, yeah. so they're always changing the policies for us as who we are. And then we end up having the situation where, um, there's a kid that's 12 that just got angry with somebody and decided they wanted to shoot him and he got it in within the hour, you know? So I, I, that's a little touchy feely for me when it comes to that gun control um, situation, but is there anything else you feel like is important for the voters to know about you or your platform? Cause I really, I, you know, the, the, the one thing I would call out, I think one of the things I, I, I really believe in is service. Um, it's, it's one of the things that I feel like I, I came back from that experience of being in the tsunami and being in, in India and just being in a completely different uh, culture that I, I do feel like I really brought back with me. And, um, and, and that's kind of one, of, that's really the driving thing is I wanna have an impact I, I want to make a difference and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of excitement. Um, folks are, are very engaged. And, you know, when we talk about these issues at the doors, like mm -hmm. people are ready for a change. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we're always looking to expand our tent and, and expand the team and would love to have people to reach out. Um, you know, our website's tomfernewhaven.com. And, you know, my, my email is tom at tomfornewhaven.com. Go to the website, all the information's there. And I just encourage people to get involved. You know, um, the political process is an important one. It is. It's important to vote because, you know, that really does determine where attention gets given. 
-hmm. So um, I just encourage people to get involved and get engaged. And, um, you know, if, if this, if, you know, the things that we talked about, if they resonate, please reach out. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. So this is, you know, I want people to be informed because a lot of times people don't understand what the role of uh, a mayor is and they just go, okay, well, I know that you're responsible for everything. So I always pull up a little bit. So this is my, uh, what is the role of a mayor? The role of a mayor is to act as the chief executive officer of the city or municipality. The, this includes overseeing day-to-day -day operations, managing the budget, and working with other city officials, working with other city officials and local representatives to address pressing community issues. So understand, sometimes the mayor's office is not your direct point of contact. You have your co-chairs first, your alders next, and then usually your alders are able to handle most things that are going on. So remember there are pretty much three people in every area or every ward in New Haven that are able to, are able to help. There's very few with one, but I just wanna let you know that that is the role of a mayor. The mayor must also be an effective communicator, both in person and through various media outlets to connect with the public and convey his or her vision for the city. Overall, the role of a mayor is multifaceted and requires a combination of leadership, management, and communication skills to be successful. We need to look at that and make sure that we do the research, do the fact checking, hang out with some people that might know who your candidate is and make sure you're choosing the right one. But if you do nothing at all, vote, vote for someone because a lot of people have died on both sides for us to do so. so Tom, I cannot thank you enough for taking out the time to hang with me. Can you let people know what you have coming up? I know I, I'm going to try oh, to get yes. on, uh, on Wednesday upcoming uh, uh, of, of this week. We're going to have an event at Delaney's at 6 p.m. I'm actually going to perform some music. Um, <laughs> so, you know, go, going back to my days of aspiring to be a musician, I've kind of found uh, a way to Incorporate that somehow but yeah we'll be doing uh, a bunch of songs from the beatles and should be a good time really right. good yeah all right i will plan on being there and i'll see if i can i wish i could be able to get you on but thank you again and you have an absolutely wonderful day i'll see you on the screen soon i know you know I, i'm supporting so yep. we will see um what happens with that and I just cannot tell you how much I appreciate the person that you are. And you just, unfortunately, you're one of my nephews. So everybody's gonna be like, oh God, here comes Marcy's nephew. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you again. And have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful day.